whenever I've had the opportunity to eat insects when I've traveled, I've always had a go. And I have to say, frankly, I'm not sure I've yet met an insect that tastes better than the sauce in which it is, it is uh, served in. Whether by a nuclear disaster, pandemic or catastrophic climate event, the apocalypse has many possible faces. But this podcast isn't about how it will happen or even what would happen if it did. It's about how we'd rebuild the staples of our societies if we had a completely blank slate to start again. This is Starting From Scratch, I'm Oli Giyu. This podcast asks if we had a clean slate to start again knowing everything we know now, could we do it better next time? By the way, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, check out some of the other shows I produce, including New Scientist Weekly and Behind the Spine over at ogpodcasts.co.uk. So in today's episode, I'm asking, how would we produce and distribute food in this new world? My guest today is Professor Sir Charles Godfrey, Director of the Oxford Martin School and the Oxford Programme on the Future of Food. So the Oxford Martin Programme in the Future of Food, it's part of the university and it's something that's run by the Martin School. And Martin School is part of the university, which has a brief to bring together interdisciplinary teams of people to address some of the major questions of the uh, 21st uh, century. And it works across a broad range of topics, some economics, some uh, climate change, for example. And one of the programmes that's been going on now for, I think, about seven or eight years is the future of food. And what that does is it brings together people from across the whole university who have have an interest in food. And these include people from the medical division, for example, who are interested in diets and diet-related disease. It includes people from our science division who are involved in trying to breed new crops, who are interested in the dynamics of climate change, and involves people from the social science division because, as you know, anything to do with food is integral to how we perceive ourselves to be as humans. It's a critical part of the economy. And so one has to think about the social and economic aspects of food. Yeah, because food decisions are incredibly personal, but at the same time, the decisions we make not only affect our waistlines, our health, but also have a huge impact on the climate, on the environment. Um, is the is the future of food a bright one? Is it Is it something that we can change fundamentally? Just before answering that question, I mean, your initial comment about the uh, decisions about being food, being personal, is exactly right. Uh, We do make decisions about literally what we put in our mouth, and that has major consequences. But it's not just an individual decision. And I worry sometimes, looking ahead about future food policy, if we assume that the consumer has to do all all the heavy lifting. So there's a really important role for government here and it's an important role for the uh, for the private sector. Your question about whether I'm an optimist. Yes, in general, I am. My disciplinary background is in population biology. So I study populations, uh, largely populations of things like pests and the vectors of diseases. But I'm obviously um, very interested in human population dynamics. One of the most extraordinary things that's happened over the last 30 years is that we know that human populations will naturally reduce their fecundity if certain things happen. If people come out of poverty, if they're given access to reproductive health care, 
And in particularly, uh, if uh, we educate their children, especially girls, if girls are educated. So we know that population growth rate will decline in time given these circumstances. This is what's called a demographic transition. And I think that's the most extraordinarily good news. It does mean that one can intellectually talk about a time when the demand of the human population for resources may plateau or fall. So against that backdrop, there are still uh, tremendous uh, challenges. One of the reasons we're going through the demographic transition is that people are coming out of poverty and becoming more wealthy and wealthier people demand a more varied and a more a diet with a greater environmental footprint. And we do have some of the really great challenges of which climate change is one, and then of a socioeconomic system, which is certainly under strain at the moment. So there are major challenges, but I think intellectually, we can look forward to a time where it is possible that we can feed a global population that is not continuing to increase, and we can feed them equitably, sustainably and healthily. And for the programme on the future of food, that is uh, requires a significant overhaul of the current global food system. So what would that overhaul look like? I guess the way I think about it is in terms of four components, demand side, uh, production side, waste and governance. And of course, it's really complex, but it's also in some respects really quite simple. If one looks dispassionately at the magnitude of the challenge facing us, then we do not have the luxury to say we can do everything by growing more crops or we can do everything by diet change or we can do everything by cutting down in waste or having a fairer international governance uh, system. The magnitude of the challenge is such is that we have to work actively on all four fronts. So uh, just briefly running through them. So on uh, the consumption side, on the consumer side, we have to get serious about diet change. There are really strong reasons to change our diets just for our personal health. There are also environmental reasons as well. We have to produce more food from the same or possibly a decreasing agricultural footprint. And we need to do that in a way that has fewer effects on the environment. We need to stamp down on waste wherever possible, but not kid ourselves that waste is a magic bullet that will uh, solve all our problems. And we need to ensure that the global system of food governance is such that parts of the world that can produce more food than is required locally can, in a resilient way, provide food for those parts of the world which, because of geography and because of the local uh, agricultural conditions, will require to be food uh, importers. So there's a multitude of uh, detail behind those four high-level uh, messages, but that, to me, is what we need to do. And I just want to go back to the point you made on the individual emphasis and how that does need to be shifted away from, um, you know, putting the blame solely in the responsibility of the consumer. How how do you do that? Because I think what we're seeing uh, potentially is some people respond well to it, but some people really respond negatively to it and actually kind of rail against the fact that they're being blamed for each individual thing they do, each bit of plastic they don't recycle, each bit of food that they put in the bin or waste. Um, how do you make sure that the individual doesn't feel completely responsible for the damage they're causing? 
Well, the individual should feel a sense of responsibility for his or her actions. So I wouldn't want to sort of completely say that the uh, individual shouldn't. But we should be aware that it is very hard for an individual to make the multiple decisions that are required to have a food system that is both healthy healthy and and sustainable. And the reasons for this is, first of all, the food system is really complex. So just for an individual consumer in the retail environment or in a restaurant, in a shop, making those decisions is just um, really, really difficult. It, It is just too complex. And we can talk about labeling and things like that. And that helps. But there is an evidence base that shows that labeling works to a certain extent, but it tends to it tends to help people who are already motivated uh, to make better decisions. And then there are many people, and especially in the, in the sort of poorer income brackets of society, who just do not have the time to be able to make these, these difficult decisions. So when you're living a really stressful life, when you have many things impinging on, on what you can do, then there is evidence that you just don't have the cognitive bandwidth to make these complicated decisions. It's not a question of being stupid or anything or anything like that. It's just if you're making a really tough, if you're having a really tough life, it's just really hard to make these difficult decisions. So I think there is a really important role for government there to make it easier for consumers to make the right decision and to take some of those decisions away from consumers. And then to work further back, then I think an important role for consumers is to provide the political license, the legitimacy for governments to make some of these decisions on our part. And I think there is a role for the private sector to be part of this. One of the things about food is that we're always going to need food. So it's not a question of say, if you're a a fossil fuel company producing petrol and you're facing the existential challenge of the market for petrol disappearing, people will always need food. So in some sense, it's easier for the private sector involved in food to be part of the process that results in a healthier and more sustainable food system. Yeah, because when you take into consideration something like our uh, quote-unquote addiction to sugar, I mean, that's a primal urge within us, isn't it? It's something that we find it as a race very hard to fight against because it's deep within our DNA to to search for food rich in energy. And when we're presented with it in abundance in supermarkets, it's just impossible to walk on by and for a lot of people and, and not to pick it up. And so actually being presented with that food may be you know, overcoming any of our uh, motivation to be better and to eat healthier and tapping into that primal aspect of ourselves, which we just can't fight. No, I completely agree. Um, We have evolved to seek out these high fat, high sugar food sources. Uh, It's not impossible, but it's really uh, difficult. My colleague at Oxford, Susan Jebb, who's one of the UK's leading uh, nutritionists, she says that, that she will occasionally have an unexpected chocolate incident when despite her very best uh, uh, intentions, she uh, buys herself a uh, a bar of chocolate that she hadn't intended to. I think uh, everyone can sympathise with that. Than, I'm far more guilty than she is. Uh, mine aren't unexpected, sadly. Um, <laughs> so 
I want to talk about the world, a new world where everything started from scratch. Um, everybody is open to uh, entirely new systems and, and uh, open to new ideas on how we work and how our food is created, grown, distributed, what we eat. Your program says unsustainable food production is a threat to food security. So starting from scratch, how would we be more sustainable? So let's talk about production first. So producing food. We have been really successful over the last uh, 50 or 60 years in developing new crops. And that development, the so-called green revolution, means that a lot of the hunger that we might have seen a lot of the hunger that was predicted in the 1970s and 1980s hasn't transpired. But the downside of the Green Revolution is that the crops that we have produced have been very demanding of inputs of water, of fertilisers and of agrochemicals. And I guess if we were starting from scratch or redesigning the way we think about how we produce new types of, of crop, then one would want to give almost equal billing to both productivity and sustainability. And so we'd be designing crops that both produce more food, but have few effects on the environment. And I think one of the encouraging things looking in the last couple of decades is that we've seen increasing intention about this. There's been some fabulous genetic results and more water efficient crops and things like that. I think that we need to think about our consumption of meat and dairy. The simple physics of it is that you require more resources to produce meat because meat comes from animals eating plants. So if you're a human and you eat plants directly, that requires less resources than if you're a human that eats meat, that eats plants. Now, some people respond to this set by uh, making the personal choice to go vegetarian or vegan. I personally would find that really difficult to do. But uh, the personal decision I've made and lots and lots of people have made is to be a flexitarian, which is to try and cut down on meat and to eat less meat, but to eat better meat. Now, that's a, a sort of personal choice that I have made. I think one also has to bear in mind that there are a very large number of people whose livelihoods depend on producing meat and dairy at the moment. And in this conversation, I'm largely talking about higher income countries. There are special considerations in, in low income countries. And if one was starting from scratch, I could see a way that people who currently, their livelihoods depend on producing relatively abundant, low cost meat, they would still be able to produce meat. They would be producing less meat and they would be being paid more for the meat that they would produce. Typically, not, not always, many of livestock farmers are farming on land which is cannot be used for arable crops, hence all their agriculture is livestock. But I think there is a different way of thinking about land. And again, if you're starting from scratch, this is what we should think about. And that thinking about the value of land for producing public goods as well as private goods. So by private goods, I mean things you go out and sell on the market, such as uh, meat. And by public goods, I mean things that there is not a market for, but are things that we require as a planet and as a nation and as a society. And that might include things such as sequestering, storing carbon 
a good thing for climate change. It might involve maintaining the landscape such that flooding doesn't happen downstream in urban areas. It might involve providing habitats for uh, biodiversity, and it might provide amenity value, recreational value for people. So I would like to see that some of the farmers at the moment that are getting all their income from producing private goods to be rewarded for both producing private goods and these public goods. And that to me would be a way that people who are currently uh, having one model of farming could transform to a, far, to a type of farming that is more environmentally sustainable. Yeah, I think what we're going to probably discover over the course of this podcast is how intimately interlinked all of these subjects, particularly the subject of food, is with um, poverty, equality, money, essentially. And in this new world, you know, if we were uh, equitable, if we were equal, all of these changes, the changes that you want to make in the real world now, they would just be more feasible and, and more possible, right? Yes, I mean, it's a very interesting question, the links between the food system and equity and poverty. If we just think about high-income countries for the moment, then you could argue that food is too cheap at the moment. So an average person in the UK, Europe or North America spends approximately 8 to 10% of their income on food. Probably in no time since money was invented has that fraction been so less. Certainly today, if one goes to uh, low-income countries and the fraction of typical income spent on food is uh, 50 or 60%. So an argument could be made in high-income countries that one could get a more sustainable and healthier food system by differential pricing. So food that produces more negative effects on the environment is more expensive. And then the market would push towards a more sustainable food system. Now, the issue with that is that those type of interventions are regressive in the sense that if you are, for example, I'm a relatively well-paid Oxford professor, that type of change would not make a lot of difference to me. But if I was a, someone in the lowest 10% income range in the UK, that would make a huge difference. And I worry tremendously about the equity and the justice and the fairness of that. And then I think it's a question for society about whether we should solve that within the food system, that is by keeping food cheap, or whether we should solve that out with the food system by in some ways reducing the poverty of people in those lower deciles. And this is quintessentially a political and politically economic decision But I think what we can do in the natural and social sciences is to make these choices uh, very clear, sort of starkly delimitate them so that we as a society can can make these, as I said, essentially political choices. Now, in this new world that I'm imagining, we really do have free reign to be as creative as, as we want. And so perhaps just based on what you were saying there, would it be a good idea to for the new government of this new world to make food to to have food given out rather than bought and so there's no price on food you're just given the food that you need to survive and to keep healthy and to maintain your own life and your family's life taking out of the equation money is that is that an answer 
Well, I personally would be um, absolutely opposed to that for um, multiple reasons. The market has worked very well in providing cheap food. It's worked very badly in providing sustainable and healthy food. To me, the solution is to modulate the rules of the market such that it produces these multiple benefits. So the market is still the best way for resource allocation that humans have come up with. There is a view among some economists, the more fundamental economists, that markets are completely self-organizing and you should allow them just to emerge and then do the resource allocation. Uh, I'm not an economist, but I share the view of many distinguished economists that this is a silly way of considering markets and markets are human constructs. And what we have to do is to construct markets in such a way that they produce these good resource allocation decisions, plus these other societal goods that a unregulated or unconstructed market tends to underproduce. Some of the problems that we see with uh, various issues in the world, in fact, probably primarily all of them, have happened um, over time because we've uh, serendipitously fallen into the next best thing to do and, and left behind a legacy of doing things not quite as well. And so we're constantly building on top of problems we've caused in the past. We're, we're, never, we're never getting the option to start from scratch. You know, some problems with uh, overfishing, for instance, you've got soil erosion, water shortages. If we did have a blank slate, could we avoid these eventualities altogether? Again, I suspect the answer to that would depend on the specifics. I do think it is interesting, and I'm going to use an example from outside the, the food system. But if we look at what is happening in some of the poorest countries in the world, we see leapfrogging technologies. I work a bit in Kenya, and the mobile phone network in Kenya is superb. And you can do things in Kenya that you can't do in the, in the UK on that. And essentially, uh, Kenya did have a, uh, a landline system, but it was never very good. And it is now leapfrogged completely to a uh, mobile telephony uh, model. And it was able to do that because the technology was available for it to jump completely to that. Another example from outside the food system, which may happen, is the power system in, again, countries like, like Kenya. So it probably won't have the national grid type structure that we have, but it will go towards uh, a mixture of big grids in urban areas and local grids out in rural areas. And of course, they're blessed by a lot of solar power. And again, you can see some leapfrogging technology happening there. Now, if one sort of pursues that argument to think about what might happen within the food system, then is it possible that as countries come out of food poverty and more and more people enter the middle classes, they may jump to uh, having a healthy and sustainable diet, not going through the pathways that we've gone in the rich world. But I'd like to think that way, but uh, I'm not sure that that is happening. One of the extraordinary things in the 30 years I've been going to Kenya is that one is seeing models of food retailing 
that uh, are associated with the rich world really becoming more and more common in Africa. So one's seeing supermarkets sort of developing in even quite small towns. And more depressing, if you go to some of the poorest areas of Nairobi or Mombasa, in areas of really informal settlements, so little, little plumbing and things, one is seeing fast food joints arising that are able to make money selling really horribly unhealthy food, but food that sort of pushes our high fat, high sugar buttons to people in very low income. So I'm less optimistic about some of the possibilities of leapfrogging in food than I am in the other examples I gave in communication and in energy. And uh, I wanted to discuss the idea of uh, entomophagy with you, um, the eating of insects, uh, which has been described as a way to fight world hunger and reduce pollution. You know, with the world's population growing, we do need to produce more food to feed everyone. Even in this new world, we'd have to make sure, because I'm imagining there's no apocalypse and that all of the same number of people still exist on the planet. So, you know, are there, I suppose there are, but are there enough insects to go around and would this be a, a good idea for this new world? Well, I'm glad you've asked me about insects because I said as a population biologist, but much of my work over the years has in, involved insects, both insect pests and things like mosquitoes that transmit disease. And I'm also an entomologist by hobby. I actually spend my spare time looking down at little wasps and things. So <laughs> whenever I've had the opportunity to eat insects when I've traveled, I've always had a go. And I have to say, frankly, I'm not sure I've yet met an insect that tastes better than the sauce in which it is it is uh, served in. So uh, I, I'm not sure it's ever going to be a tremendous gourmet dish. Insects are a very good way of producing protein. And why they are good is that they can use inputs that can't be used by, by other things. So, for example... They can use feedstocks that you couldn't feed to, say, livestock and an animal. And there are a number of uh, really impressive systems that produce large volumes of protein associated with insects such as the black soldier fly, which you may have come across. I'd make a couple of points. One is that we are not protein limited in the rich world. And one sees a sort of fetishism of protein sometimes in marketing and things. So you get things being uh, marketed as high protein. And with relatively few exceptions, the vast majority of us in the rich world eat more protein that, than we need. So I'm not sure that protein is a very major limiting factor. If one's talking about some of the alternatives to meat, and you'll be aware of all these um, miraculous burgers that are now coming on uh, for sale, then it's not clear to me that insects would be a more efficient way of producing the proteins that go into that compared with plants or compared with uh, microorganisms, in particular fungi. So I, I'm not sure that entomophagy in the rich world is going to be a major answer for those two reasons. Where I'm much more optimistic or think that insects really have a role is producing feedstocks for livestock in developing in some of the poorest countries. Now, when I said earlier that we need to eat less meat and, meat and dairy 
for a sustainable food system. I was really concentrating on medium and high income countries. There are many parts of the world where very poor people absolutely rely on livestock for both nutrition and sometimes for economic sustainability as well. And they have problems feeding their livestock, finding the protein, protein rich feedstocks uh, for them. And in those parts of the world, I think that uh, entomophagy or producing proteins from insects may be very valuable. And there's some really good projects in the Sahel in sub-Saharan Africa at the moment, which shows how that can work at scale. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the uh, the sort of vegan vegetarian alternatives to uh, burgers and things like that. You've also got um, potentially we've got the knowledge of how to make lab grown meat now. So in this new world, it could be um, something that we pay particular focus to potentially lab grown meat. Yes, but, but let's be clear what we mean by lab grown meat. So at the moment, the products on store are largely processed meats. So the equivalent of sausage and burgers. Uh, such as that. And they are using material from plants, as I said, from from fungi. So that's up and running. And I don't know if you've tasted one of these these burgers, but at at least to me, I'm not a huge burger aficionado, they taste pretty much like an ordinary meat meat burger. They are very close. I'm I'm hugely impressed every time I bite bite into one. But it's interesting that at the moment, the marketing strategy for them is to sell them at a premium product. They're being sold for the sort of foodies and the middle classes. I think it'd be really interesting if the if they can go down so that they can be they can be the default burger in uh, in McDonald's or Burger King or something like that. Then they will be able to make a difference. But lab grown meat is still. I think really quite early along the development stage. It's an exciting area, a huge amount of research is going on to it at the moment. I think that there are technological barriers that have to be overcome before we can produce something that will sit on our plate like a steak or like a chop or something like that and be similar, have the same as they call it mouthfeel as the, the real product. I suspect that will come. I suspect that research in cognitive areas such as medical research on, on the wound healing and things, trying to understand muscle physiology and development, that is all going to hope. It's not there yet, and I suspect it won't be there for a decade. I might be wrong in its five years, I might be wrong in its 20 years, but I suspect it will come at some stage. Again, then, what will be really interesting is both the economics whether the price can come down so that it is competitive with traditionally produced meat, and also the environmental footprint. At the moment, the environmental footprint of some of these lab-grown meats is very high, but that's understandable. And um, early in the development pathway, one would expect it to be high, and there are opportunities for making it more efficient down the line. And final question then, I'm going to give you the blank slate and you have to imagine the three steps that you would take to create the f- the perfect sustainable equitable and healthy food system for this new future and um, what are those three steps and, and what would that clean slate look like well i'm not sure i can answer that question directly because it's very hard we don't have a clean slate but to try and answer that question then i, I would sort of pick three areas. 
And the area that I would really like to see is on the consumption side, a far more, almost a communitarian approach to diet. So a philosophy where we as individuals, we as people who elect governments, and we as people who have stakes in our private sector, come and try and work together to make it easier for all of us to have healthier and sustainable diets. Now, that does sound rather pie in the sky, but you asked me to uh, imagine a, a clean slate. So I do that. On, that's number one on the consumption side. On the production side, I think we need to think about land use in a completely different way. Now, the caveat to what I'm about to say is really important. We do not have the luxury for any land to be non-productive. So the old joke, they're not making land anymore, is true. We have to use all the land we have in a productive way. But here's the important caveat. When I say productive, I mean productive not only in producing food, fuel and fibre, the classical private goods, but productive in producing public goods as well. Habitats for biodiversity, carbon storage. So we have to look at each parcel of land anywhere in this country, anywhere in the world, and ask difficult questions about how that can be used so that it produces both public and private goods. And I think something that is inescapable, certainly in the UK, but I think in any country in the world, is that we will see radical changes in land use over the next couple of decades. And that's an area which I don't think that we are, we really realise quite how much change is coming down the line. And then there's a lot of issues around governance. And I guess one of the things that keeps me awake at night is what happens if we got our global governance system for food wrong? So at the moment, we are shipping food around the world. If you look at some of the biggest cities in the world, the enormous cities in sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of them require for food security, for food being imported from outside. Now, I think in the future, one will see more and more of that food produced locally. But certainly for the foreseeable future, we need to make certain that global, the pattern of trade in global food commodities works. And at the moment, it does seem to work. It's something that the market has organised. There are relatively few number a small number of, of firms that are involved. Interestingly, many of them are private firms, so we don't have as much exposure to the details of their working as we would as if they were public listed. And I think if one looks back on the pandemic, then the global food system has performed relatively well. It has shown a resilience that two years ago, I wouldn't have been absolutely convinced did exist. I'd have hoped it to exist. And I think that it has shown resilience, but I still worry about the resilience of it. And I'd like to see the global food system today tested in a way that we rather wish we had tested the banks before 2008. So I don't think we should wait for there to be a crisis in global food system governance. We should be proactively testing it at the moment, stress testing it at the moment to check that we don't have a disaster in the future. Because were there to be a disaster, were we to be able to, to be unable to feed some of these enormous urban centres in Africa, the Kinshasas and the Lagos, Lagoses with between 10 and 20 million people apiece, 
then one would get a degree of social, political and economic disruption that we've not seen before. And we do live in a globalised uh, world. And if we look at some of the tragedies of the poor people trying to get in Europe across the Mediterranean, we don't want to increase the number of people who are forced into economic migration. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thanks so much. I've enjoyed it. Thanks to Professor Sir Charles Godfrey and to you for listening. I'm Oli Guyou and this is Starting From Scratch. If you have any topics you'd like me to discuss, you can get in touch with me directly by visiting ogpodcast.co.uk.